The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Sabah. This week's edition is part three of our prediction series. Listen in as my colleagues discuss what's ahead for this year. Swaha Patanaik, you think the stability of bond prices in the U.S., Europe, Great Britain, and Japan are heading for a period of instability. Tell us why. Well, it's not quite clear how it's going to pan out, whether they're going to end up up or down, but I think instability is the right word, definitely. Um, It's going to be the first time in four years that the combined issuance of the US, Japanese, Eurozone and UK governments is going to outstrip how much the central banks of these countries are buying. Hmm, okay. So what we get is we have an increase in the amount of issuance and we also have a decrease in the amount of bonds that the governments, uh, the central banks of these countries are buying. The combined effect of these two uh, things is going to be a little startling for a bond market that's been used to having uh, central banks uh, behind them backstopping at every turn. So, and and again, how does this affect uh, the prices? So right now they've been uh, fairly stable, kind of plain vanilla, Is that if that's the best way to describe it, perhaps? Yeah, we've had a long period of declining bond yields. So bond prices go up, bond yields go down. So bond yields have been declining so much so that some of them have gone into negative territory. We have data from TradeWeb, which showed towards the end of last year, nearly half of outstanding European government bonds and more than half of Japanese ones were yielding less than zero. So they've gone down a long way. Now that's stabilized and it's starting very gradually to turn upwards on the yield front, uh, especially in the US where the economic cycle is most developed. That's going to become a more marked trend probably this year, given central banks are easing off on their buying. Okay, so so talk a little bit more about the instability. Like, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, it, it, that, that sounds good that the yields um, are, are going to be better, but, but what it, it seems to also be uh, a little more unpredictable, if you will. What, what, what is happening and why is that? Well, for so long, you've had central banks smoothing price action that for the first time in a good few years you have investors having to stand on their own two feet deal with news deal with perhaps credit defaults Mm. and there have been people who have moved into areas of the credit market where they're not used to going or being usually because they've sought out higher yields people have gone into less liquid markets so those people are more likely to be spooked and try and run for the sort of gates uh, where the first sign of trouble because this is not their natural comfort zone. The other thing that happens is people who have invested in pretty liquid sort of uh, parts of the credit market may not be able to get out when the going gets tough and will be forced to sell the more liquid bits of their portfolio. And that will generate instability sort of across a wider range of the bond market than you'd expect, even if the trouble is very localized. Okay, and and so and you expect that in the U.S., in Europe, in Great Britain, and in Japan, sort of globe. I mean, globally, if you will. Well, instability in say the benchmark U.S. bond market spills over everywhere. So okay. while Japan is probably still more supported by central bank buying than anywhere else, these sort of bond ructions tend to be global in their nature. Okay. Well, Swaha, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Neil Unmack, you and our colleague Tom Berkeley wrote that passive index funds managed by BlackRock and the like will get even more active this year and that C-suite executives should be on guard. 
So, Neil, what's going on here? Sure. Hi. Well, what what we're really writing about is um, essentially what you know what we're seeing clearly is the massive growth of passive funds uh, and the way that that is changing or affecting governance. Um, so it's a you know it's a long-established trend that we've seen the amount of money going into passive funds and the amount of money coming out of active funds. Um, are, you know, is, is, is the amount of money, go, both of them are increasing. So last year in the, the data as of October from Morningstar showed that roughly twice as much money went into passive funds like ETFs uh, as, as came out of uh, active funds. And the question well, so, that that, so they have a massive amount of power than a lot of companies. Right, they have more power. And the question really is, what does that do for the governance of, of listed companies? And you have people like um, Paul Singer uh, at Elliott saying, you know, th there's this very colorful expression he used that passive funds are devouring capitalism. And the idea there is that they are a sort of absentee landlord that doesn't really do anything, doesn't turn up to vote, doesn't really take into account, doesn't really hold executives to account. Mm -hmm. And we think we think that view is actually, well, wrong. And um, we think that the, the reality is a bit more nuanced than that. And we think that, that passive funds are going to play an increasingly active role going forward. Yeah, and, and what are some examples? I mean, we've seen some of this uh, last year, um, but you think they're going to get even more active, correct? Right. So, I mean, so, yeah, first of all, the view is wrong because we are actually seeing, as you say, some see them becoming increasingly active and becoming active in sort of, um, you know, sort of more sort of abstract areas such as, um, you know, ethics, uh, gender diversity, um, climate change. Um, so, for example, you know, the classic example is um, BlackRock. Uh, and Vanguard forcing ExxonMobil to report on the risks it could face from climate change. Um, right. But we also see them, you know, acting increasingly um, in terms of governance. So, for example, in the UK, you have Legal and General, which is a very large uh, index uh, fund manager, you know, mounting a campaign against um, uh, Mike Ashley of Sports Direct, who's a very um, colourful um, uh, chairman, uh, sorry, sorry, founder and uh, chief executive, who's you know been accused of, of bad governance. Um, uh, you also saw, for example. Um, uh, BlackRock, I think, um, supporting Nelson Peltz's um, bid for board representation at Procter and Gamble. So they're right. already they're already pretty active, actually. Or they're already not they're not they're, they're, they're not absentee landlords, certainly. Um, and we think that the reason why they're going to become more active is simply because as they grow, um, you know, the public scrutiny will focus more and more on them. Um, voting rights will be concentrated amongst a smaller number of people, and they will be increasingly able to actually throw their weight around more effectively. I think the key takeaway is simply that they will become more active next year. Um, and one way that we may see that is in, a, in a high profile battles that would probably end with a CEO being forced to quit. All right, Neil, thank you so much. Cheers. Katrina Hamlin, you think that 2018 is going to be a big year for electric vehicles. Why is that? Well, for the first time in 2018, I think um, electric vehicles are going to reach price parity with internal uh, combustion engine vehicles, which is to say that if you want to go out and buy a car, it's going to be just as cheap to go and buy an electric vehicle in terms of the price you pay the day you buy it and also uh, the running costs that you have to deal with after that. What does that mean, do you think, for the traditional car industry and for new players like Tesla? Well, in one sense, it's very exciting because a lot of uh, the major automakers have been trying to break into the electric vehicle market. So they've been working on their electric vehicle brands and technology, and now suddenly that becomes much more accessible to consumers. So perhaps this market will take off. But um, there is a downside, which is um, although these cars are going to be just as cheap for consumers, 
um, for the automakers themselves, it's going to be a few more years before uh, their margins uh, catch up with the internal combustion engine margins. So um, it could be as many as five years before they're able to achieve profit margins of uh, 5% on um, electric vehicles, which means it's going to be a bit of a squeeze for them in the near term. So good news for the environment, effectively, but not such good news, a difficult transition period for the auto companies and for their investors. Very difficult. And unfortunately, they're probably just going to have to grin and bear it because if they decide not to go through this difficult transition period, they might find that they don't have the brands and um, the kind of audience that they need to be a part of this market when it really takes off and becomes profitable in five years or so. We're sitting in Hong Kong where electric vehicles are doing super well. Tesla has sold a lot of cars. Is the electric vehicle revolution proceeding at the same speed all around the world or are some markets moving more slowly than others? Right. Well, um, in some places it's moving a bit more quickly because subsidies and policies are helping to kind of push things along. And then there are some places in the world that are just kind of more suited to electric vehicles or at least the electric vehicles of today. So smaller places like Hong Kong, you don't have that kind of fear that you're going to have to nip home and charge your battery and you'll be miles and miles away from home because it's a very small place. So um, these kinds of areas are perhaps in a way a little bit ahead. And then within these different geographies, uh, there's also different kinds of markets. So, for example, um, you have ordinary people who are buying their cars uh, to go to work or whatever every day. And then you also have taxi fleets um, and commercial vehicles. So um, the Ubers and traditional taxis of this world. And um, for them, uh, they could be even closer to price parity because um, the nature of their business, they're running their cars, you know, 24 hours a day, not just the couple of hours a day, a day that ordinary drivers would be using their cars. Um, so they stand to make more savings um, in terms of vehicle maintenance Electric vehicles are very cheap to maintain. Um, and so in those particular niches within the market, um, price parity could come earlier and the uptake of electric vehicles could move along a bit sooner. Sounds like the auto industry is going to have to execute some complicated manoeuvres in 2018. Thanks very much, Katrina. It's a good time to be a European soccer player. Clubs in England, Spain, France, Italy, and Germany are opening up their coffers, offering record amounts to attract talent. Liam Proud, you've been on the case. What is going on? So, I mean, 2017 was a real, I mean, every year looks like a kind of new bumper year with European soccer transfer values. But 2017 was really something else. I mean, the kind of, the, the headline that most people will have noticed was that Paris Saint-Germain, which is the biggest French club, paid uh-huh. Barcelona about 222 million euros, which is about 260 um, million dollars at the time, for Neymar, who is a Brazilian player. And this has kind of gone down as a, you know, a kind of peak cycle, you know, soccer transfer bubble um, number in the public. Yeah, that, that sounds like a very big number. So let me just ask you something uh, yeah. technically here. Does does that mean that the club gets the entire money or does Neymar see any of that? Like, how does that work? For so so, so that's player? completely separate from his wages. He'll he'll get a, okay. an, another, you know, I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but he'll he'll get some wages, which 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 has got nothing to do with that transfer number. That is just a, 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 a transfer fee that's paid by the buying club to the club that currently has that player under contract. So that Got was paid it. from Paris Saint-Germain to Barcelona. Um, and, okay. it's, and you know, that was the kind of the, 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 the headline that caught most people's eyes, but it really is Europe-wide, club-wide, 
in England's Premier League, for example, there was about £1.4 billion spent on players during the summer, um, according to Deloitte, um, which was up by about a quarter from the previous year. And wow. FIFA, which FIFA is the governing body worldwide for the sport, reckons that, that, that globally about $4.7 billion was spent um, on player transfers just between June and August. And that was about the same as was spent in the whole of 2016. So basically what's going on here is that there's just an insane amount of money in the sport. And, and that's more or less driven by a few kind of big trends. One of them is um, increasing value of TV rights, which is basically you know, the, the fee that is paid by people who want to broadcast the matches um, to the, 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 the leagues. So therefore that then goes through to the clubs. And almost all of that seems to be going on, um, you know, things like salaries and and club transfer fees for different players. And there's this right. big kind of, you know, meme, I guess, at the moment that that this is just a huge bubble fit to burst. I mean, the, one of the kind of high-profile critics of it has been a, a, a football manager in the UK called Arsene Wenger, who has called it all beyond rationality, beyond calculation. Um, and there's a fair degree of truth to that, really. I mean, if you if you look at some of the numbers, I mean, these, these consultants called Twenty First Club, they they found that about 56% of the players who were their club's most expensive signing um, went on to become core members of the squad, which means that you know more more than more than you know more than 40% of the players that are the most expensive signings at a club aren't even um, starting more than half of matches in the subsequent season. So there is some truth to the idea that it's uh, that there's a lot of wasteful spending going on here. Well, well, Liam, so it, it sounds, the numbers sound crazy, but put this in perspective. What is that in terms of what, like what percentage of that, of these transfer fees is the overall pot to just what these uh, clubs are getting, broad, like broadly? So it, so it does sound crazy, and, 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 and that's if you look at the nominal numbers, which is, you know, just the, the, the sticker fees, which, which everyone kind of sees in the headlines. It does seem crazy. But what my piece is arguing is that there's actually a fair degree of p- commercial logic going on here. I mean, if you, if, you, if you just take transfer spending as a percentage of, of clubs' revenues overall, um, Deloitte reckons that it was about 31% of um, clubs, this is English clubs, um, uh-huh. estimated full-year revenue was spent on gross player spending um, in the summer. And that's, that that's, seems reasonable to me. That, that's fairly reasonable in the sense that it's, it's about where it's been since 2003. It's only slightly up on the 27% average. Um, okay. and, and it's also not a million miles away from what other kind of high-intensity capital expenditure companies um, might spend on, on kind of capex. I mean, I, I looked at some New York University data which showed that certain utility companies and entertainment software companies, they Uh used a similar amount of their resources um, on capital expenditure as a percentage of revenue. So what I really wanted to argue was basically that while it looks kind of crazy, the amount of money that's being spent on soccer players in Europe, it's actually probably sustainable and it will probably keep growing because there's no reason to think that income from from broadcasting rights is going to go down. I mean, you know, we've we've covered extensively at Breaking Views this kind of global war for TV content, which is driving up the price of, um, you know, high value content. And and European right. soccer is really one of the preeminent properties in that. 
I mean, just yeah. the, the last uh, Premier League auctions, for example, which is the English Soccer League, um, Sky, which is one of the biggest UK um, sports broadcasters, ended up paying about 80% more than it had in the in the previous auctions. Now, we might not see that level of inflation again, but, but even if it goes up, you know, by a much more modest 20, 30%, then clubs have a have a reason to keep spending more money on players. And then if you add on to that the fact that some of the US tech giants, Facebook, Amazon, um, have started looking at sports rights. You know, we had this 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 bid for ATP World Tour Tennis by Amazon, and they mm-hmm. beat Sky to that. Facebook bid about six hundred million dollars for some Indian cricket. If mm-hmm. if and it is an if because we don't know if they'll go for any European soccer rights at this stage. But but if that is the case, then then you can see this this just keeping keeps getting crazier and crazier. The money will keep coming in. Most of it will end up on um, either in the pockets of the players or with other clubs through transfer fees, um, and we'll keep seeing um, more and more crazy headline numbers. <laughs> okay, Liam. Thank you so much. Cheers. Bye. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank all my Breaking Views colleagues for pitching in. And hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio, Ryan Warner, and Freddie Joyner. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Be sure to check us out at breakingviews.com, where you can find our predictions book. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.